you have a Bible and you want to turn to there or click to that, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, starting a new teaching series um, in this little New Testament book. While you're turning there, uh, when we are little, we start making claims of what we are going to do when we grow up. Uh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be an athlete. I want to be an actor or an actress. I want to be a vet. Uh, for me, when I was younger, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, as I got older, that changed to where I wanted to be a youth pastor and work with teenagers. I know that the one thing I never thought that I would ever do is be a pastor, and then <laughs> God has a sense of humor. Um, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, once the teen years hit, though, this what am I going to do gets mer merged or even morphed or coupled with this other question of, deeper question of, who am I? Who am I? And answering that question can be even more difficult than what am I going to do, because as we wrestle with it, we also have to process what other people tell us and navigating what other people say about who we are. In fact, but we get to this idea of answering, asking that question when we're younger, that we know, and you know whether we honestly want to admit this or not, that that question, who am I, doesn't stop being asked once we leave our teenage years. In fact, we typically continue to ask that as we get older and the years go by. And that's a really important question. In fact, I would say that asking the question, who am I, and processing that and coming to grips with that and being aware of that and being reminded of that, that who am I is one of the most important questions we should be asking. But add to this, though, that often we can question the reality of who we are during difficult times. It's when life gets hard that asking that question becomes harder. When things get really hard and our world gets rattled or even shattered, then how we have constructed our being is threatened or even collapses. The questions come in, the doubts arrive, cynicism and bitterness might even show up as we process, who am I? Not only do we question who we are, but then at that time, once things get difficult and that collapse happens or threatens to happen, then we can also start questioning who God is. A spiritual crisis can occur. Why would God let this happen? Is he even around? Does he care? Where is God? And what is he doing? Now, though I'm speaking generally, for many of us, the last year, 2020, all that what makes it what it is, and even here into 2021, is adding to that. It's been a year of specific examples within these ideas. Whether it's the challenges of social distancing or the toxic nature of disagreements within our society, maybe job loss or fractured relationships or any of these other things that define the last 14 months for what they are. Who we are. Where is God and what is he doing? These questions become harder to ask and harder to answer. When the question, who am I, shows back up, wouldn't it be great, though, to have a confident answer to that? Wouldn't it be great to know to what the answer to that question is, and an answer that is grounded, providing hope and purpose? 
And when that question, where is God and what is he doing, pops back in your mind, wouldn't it be great to have a confident answer for that as well? Well, thankfully, we have the New Testament letter of Philippians. This small little letter written to a group of people that are asking some of the same questions, are asking similar questions. And what is amazing about Philippians is it helps us answer those questions as we process them. And so I want to invite you to be with us not only for today, but for the next few weeks as we go through this letter. Because it is incredibly practical for what we're experiencing. To be in the midst of this pandemic for now 14 months, I mean, well, almost 14, uh, 10 months now. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> to be in the midst of this for this long, we need to be reminded of the answers to these questions. We need to be reminded, or maybe even here for the first time, the powerful message of this little letter. And so before we dive into it, let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. And God, we, we do that. We ask that you would speak. We know, God, that you, from your word, it says that you are present, you are here, that you are not far off, you're not distant, you are with us. Whether we're sitting on our couch, sitting at the breakfast table, sitting in one of these pews, you are present with us. And you know more about what's going on with our questions than we do as we ask them. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us. The, the burdens that we bring in this morning, whether it's dealing with school or dealing with friends or dealing with work or dealing with financial stuff or dealing with relationship stuff or questions about the future, whatever it is, God, the things that we're carrying, the burdens that are too heavy, God, I pray that you would make them a little lighter this morning so we could hear from you. I pray that, Spirit, that you would speak. I pray that you would speak through your word and let it powerfully penetrate our hearts and our minds that we would hear from you and know that you are speaking. And so we pray that you would do what only you can do. We pray that it would be amazing, God. And we're grateful that you want to be known. And so be known to us now. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now, Chicago is my number one city in the world. But in that, I have to say that San Francisco is pretty close to my short list at the top as well. Um, it is one of my favorite cities to visit in all of the country. Um, the first time that our family went to San Francisco, we were able to visit Alcatraz, which is really awesome to take a, a probably at the time six and four-year-old walking around like, you know, if you're really bad, I'm no, I didn't say that. Um, and so there's been a lot of different prisoners who have walked the cells and been in the cells of Alcatraz, whether it was Al Capone or the Birdman or depending on the movies you watch, Sean Connery. Uh, there's been a lot of different people that are there. Uh, while we were visiting, this is a picture of me in solitary confinement. Uh, next one. Uh, can't totally see me, but that silhouette back there is me. Um, and no, Jeanette did not get the door closed, even though she tried. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't do that. Um, but you think about the idea of being in this closed and locked cell and what that would feel like. I mean, I, that was years ago when I stood in that cell, but even remembering it, seeing the picture of it, there's a sense of feeling trapped, of feeling lost, of feeling alone, of feeling hopeless, 
I mean, it's one thing to be in prison. It's another thing to be in that part of the prison. Now, I show you these pictures. I show you that idea because as we get to the letter of Philippians, we have to remember and or know that Paul, the guy who wrote it, he was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was imprisoned when he wrote it. Philippians is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And there's a little bit of disagreement as to where he was when he wrote it, but wherever he was, he was in some form of imprisonment. That might have been as intense as being thrown as a pit, into a pit, like what this picture is showing you, just like a hole in the ground that people got dumped in. It might have been as mild as house arrest, or it could have been something in between, like being chained to a guard or something like that. Whether the letter's setting was the worst of experiences or a lighter variation, Paul is, was no stranger to hard times. Paul was no stranger to difficulties. In fact, he explains to another church that he had been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, had been exposed to death again and again, that five times he received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once, he was pelted with stones. Three times, shipwrecked. Uh, next slide. Uh, he had spent a, a night and a day in the open sea, had been constantly on the move. He says, I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I have faced the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. You hear Paul's story. This is a guy who knew the worst of times. And in the midst of one of them, he writes what is considered his most positive, encouraging letter. Out of all of the things that he wrote, and many, most of our New Testament are letters that he wrote, and out of all of them, the one that is the most encouraging, the one that's known and the reputation as being the most positive, was written while he was in prison, was written in the midst of difficult times. And that doesn't really seem to add up, does it? How does a guy in circumstances that can be described as lost and alone and helpless write a work that has a reputation for being the exact opposite? Well, the answer is found in the opening of the letter, in Philippians 1.6, which is the key to the entire letter. And in it, he says this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the most important verse, one of the most important verses in all of Philippians. If you were going to learn, memorize, hold in your heart one verse from this entire letter, let it be this one. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the main point of all the Philippians the thing that we're going to keep coming back to time and time again over the next few weeks, God is always working. God is always working. God is always on the clock. He is always at work 
and he never stops. We get tired and we need to take a coffee break. We work multiple days in a row and need to take a day off. We go and go and go and we need to take a vacation, which are all good things and there's nothing wrong with any of them. But God never punches out. God never does this. He never goes to the punch out clock. He is always on the clock. He never gets weary. He never gets overwhelmed. He never gets distracted and he never breaks a sweat. God is always on the job. How can Paul write such an encouraging letter from such a confinement-like situation? Because he knows that regardless of what's going on around him, that God is still working. That he knows regardless of the circumstances that he is in, God is not off the clock. God is working. Paul can look at his prison walls and say, I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you're doing something. I don't know what's going on, but I know that you do. A situation that most would look at as impossible, Paul looks at as full of possibilities because his confidence wasn't in himself and his focus is not on where he's at. His focus and his confidence is solely in God. He doesn't allow his circumstances to define him or his focus. His focus in life has given him confidence because his focus is on the Lord. And if God's not done, he says, then I'm not done. And if God's not finished, then I'm not finished. And if God's still working, then he says, I'm not giving up. What seemingly impossible situation do you feel like you're in right now? What's your house arrest? What makes you feel imprisoned? That's what 2020 has felt like for a lot of people. It's just one negative on top of negative, one overwhelming thing on top of overwhelming thing. And this year has not let up. Any sense of reprieve that we thought might have come in 2021, January's been great, right? And it just keeps going. But know this, God is still working. God is not done. That does not minimize the difficulties that we experience. That is not saying hard times aren't hard. That is not saying difficult times aren't incredibly heavy. But what it's saying is that even though they're heavy, even though they're difficult, it doesn't mean God has stopped working. God is always working. The presence of difficult times means God is working in difficult times. It doesn't mean that God is checked out or taking a break. The reality of huge trials, the reality of suffering doesn't mean that God is scrambling or trying to find the manual to troubleshoot your life or figure out what's going on. It means that God is working in the midst of your difficult times. And so know that within everything that you're processing, within everything that you're going through, make sure you put that piece of information in first. Make sure that truth never leaves your mind. Make sure you never forget that, but God is still working. But God is still working. But God is still working. What are you carrying right now? God is still working. 
What are you facing right now? God is still working. What do you feel overwhelmed with? God is still working. Again, I'm not saying that those things aren't overwhelming, difficult, sad, hard, challenging, whatever they are, but it's those things and God is still working in you. God is not done and you know that he is present and working in the midst of those situations as well because that's what happens sometimes The reason why these heavy things become overwhelming is that we forget the fact or we ignore the fact or we doubt the fact that God is working and we can't allow that wrong thinking to enter our minds and our hearts. God is always working. And if he's always at work, then we have to ask, what is he working on then? I mean, if God is always working, we want to make sure we understand what that work is. And that's what the next part of the letter is, is that God is always working on the people that you and I are becoming. God is always working on the people that we are becoming. It says in verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is my prayer for you, church, is what he says. This is what I'm asking God for when I think of all of you. This is what I'm calling out to God for begging him for on your behalf when I think about you and I think about the fact that God is always working this is what I'm praying for and what he prays for is that is what God is working on he is working on you he is working on the person that you are throughout all of the New Testament we see different mentions of this fact that people who follow Jesus are to be like Jesus. That to have a relationship with him is to grow to be more like him. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, it says this, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. It says in Romans 8, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. And 1 Peter 1 says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become a new person. We, a new identity begins. The Bible at times calls that start of that being born again. We are like babies in the faith. But that is not where we are to remain You're not meant to continually be a baby in the faith. We're meant to grow up, to mature, and that takes a lifetime. The tragedy for many is that physically, socially, and even spiritually is that we grow old with never growing up. I mean, listen, it's really cute to take some babies and grow them, dress them up to look like older people. And it might look, make for a really cute picture, but it makes for a horrible spiritual reality that we would grow old and still be babies in the faith. This is why we have passages in the Bible 
that tell us things like grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Age and maturity are not the same thing. And in the spiritual realm, any more than the physical, we have to keep growing. And so we sang earlier, you're not finished with me yet. What is God not finished with? Growing you to become more and more like his son. Growing you, maturing you to be more and more like Jesus. Guiding you to be holy as he is holy. That's what Paul is praying for. This is the entire message of Philippians. God is working on the person that you are in the midst of the situations that you find yourself in. And this is the challenge for us who follow Jesus. If you are in here or you're watching and you say you follow Jesus, this is just something that we have to be really honest about. How many times in the last 10 months have we been so enamored with the difficulty of the situations and not asked once, but who am I in the midst of the difficult situation? Because that's the reality of Philippians, is that God is making you to be a certain type of a person, and it doesn't matter how difficult it is, you can still be that person, and he is still working on you to be that person to be holy as he is holy, to be like Jesus. He prays, he prays that you would grow in your faith. And he specifically prays for two things, that they would be empowered with love that thinks. That you would be empowered with love that is not just emotional, but that is also engages the mind. Which is, not, again, that's, normally it's not how we consider things when we talk about love. We normally goes to, go to emotions, but Paul goes to our brains. For Christians, love to, for Christian love to be genuine, love, true love for God and for others, it must be rooted in a deep desire to understand the ways of the Lord, the scriptures, and what holiness is, and putting those things into practice. We might not feel a certain way in a moment, but I know what's true in the moment regardless of how I feel. And that's what Paul in this letter is going to get to. You have to know what's true because there's going to be some moments where you don't feel like it and your feelings are going to skew you a different way. So you need to fall in love with what's true so that you know that foundation to walk on when it gets difficult. And so may you have the empowered with a love that processes, that thinks, that's rooted in the truth of God's word. But he also prays that they would be passionate about living intentional. In verses 10 to 11, he says, discern what is best. To discern is to be critical. It's to critically examine. It means to put to the test. It's to not just live flippantly, but to live with intentionality. He wants us to be able to examine in all situations what the best course of action is. How do I move forward being pure and blameless and overflowing with righteousness? And that just doesn't simply happen. It's not automatic. This isn't just reflex. It's something that we have to be intentional about. We have to be intentionally pure. No hidden motives. No hidden desires. Just wanting to be with God. Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. 
To be pure in heart is to have one central focus, one defining reality. And when Jesus is the single obsession of your heart, you will experience the presence of the Lord. In fact, that's one of the things that we have to be honest about is that the times when we feel that we're so far away from God, we have to ask ourselves, has something else gotten into our heart and taken the focus off of him? Are we enamored with some other pursuit, some difficulty, some trial, some question, some doubt, some want? Or are we purely focused on him? Because when you are intentionally pure in heart, when you are intentionally focused, you will see and know the Lord. We have to be intentionally blameless, without fault, no offense, no blemish, that I'm going to go through life doing what I can to honor him with my life. We're going to talk about that more last week, but I think that it has to be said, we need to be intentionally blameless, but also to know that all of us will fail in that. That doesn't give us permission to just, well, not care, but it gives us permission to continue to try to be blameless in everything and in the moments where we do mess up to remember that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He also prays that they would be intentionally righteous, that the character of God would just burst out of us, that who Jesus is would overflow out of our lives. This is why Paul in Colossians says, So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul is praying these things for them. God is working on you that your mind would think this way, that your life would be intentional this way, that who you are would grow and grow more in the reality of Jesus in this way. He is not praying about the situations they are in, but who they are in the situations. He wants them to be the children of God they are in all situations. He wants them to be like Jesus in all situations. He wants them to be enamored with the idea that God is working on who they are in all situations and to be in love with that reality. Again, we'll get more to this next week, but what Paul will say later in the letter is this. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God is working on you to make that happen. God is helping you and guiding you and teaching you and fashioning you so that you can walk worthy, so that you can be the person that he saved you to be in Jesus. God is always working on the people that we are becoming. Now, God is always working on who you and I are becoming, but it's, it's also a little wider than that. God is always working on the community that we are becoming. God is always working on the community that we're becoming. I intentionally skipped over the first half of this paragraph because I wanted to get to the heart of the book, that God is always working on the people that we're becoming. But the first part of this paragraph makes sure that we don't miss an important theme in Philippians. We are part of something. To live the Christian life, to follow Jesus, is to be with others. And so we see in verses 3 and 5, and we, through 5, and we see again in verses 7 and 8, Paul's love for this church. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel 
from the first day until now. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He is deeply thankful for them. They are people that he prays joyfully for, people that hold a special place in his heart, and he longs to be with them. But key to grasping his heart toward them is this word that he says they are partners. They are partners. They are doing this together. They are not merely associates. These are not just acquaintances. These are not people he is simply aware of. These are people that he is closely connected with. There is mutual investment in each other's lives with one guiding focus, the truth of the gospel. You know, when you first meet somebody, you start asking questions like, you know, where are you from? What do you like to do? What do you do in your free time? You're trying to find some type of commonality that you can kind of latch on and start talking about that so you can connect with the person. Any people that follow Jesus have an immediate connection, and it's Jesus. And that isn't trivial. That goes to the core of who we are. That common ground is priority. It's central to our identity. There is mutual concern for one another in regard to how Jesus is seen in one another and how Jesus guides our treatment of one another. There's also a mutual concern for how Jesus is shared through all of us and how Jesus motivates our care for one another. As we become more and more like Jesus, the community becomes more and more like Jesus. The Christian life is not one lived in isolation. To follow Jesus is not a solo endeavor. It is one that we do together. I've said this many times in this place. You, we all have to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. We each have to make that choice. I am going to put my faith in him. I am going to surrender who I am to him that he can give me a new life. We have to make that personal decision, but that is not an exclusively personal relationship with him. Because even though I do have a personal relationship with him, to have a personal relationship with Jesus is to have a family relationship with one another. We are connected. And so you know what that means? It means you're not just sitting in a pew right now. It means you're not just watching a screen right now. It means you're connecting with spiritual family. And that should change how we interact with one another. May we, the, the church is, and I say this largely, but it's something we have to deal with locally, that we would treat the church as a family place and not just a storefront that we can come and be consumers of. Because consumers of Christianity will come, show up, leave, and then there's nothing else. Consumers of Christianity will come, show up, as long as it's liking it, and if there's something I don't like or something that's not said, I'll just fade off and never say anything. Consumers of Christianity will come and get what they can and never give anything. Consumers of Christianity will only take but never give, connect, serve, and wonder how other people are doing. And that's not how we want this church to be. That's not how, when we say New Life Community Church, 
That is not arbitrary churchy language. That is an aspiration and a goal. We want to build community here. And so we're doing everything we can, whether it's making our services safe as possible to be at or available to do at from home, groups that people can attend throughout the week, events that you can come and participate in. There are options to connect here, but you have to take a step as well. You have to enter into that. And so for some of you, you've grown up in the church. I mean, it was the thing that mom and dad made you do. And now you're on your own and you're just kind of feeling like you got to do it because don't let that be the reason. Intentionally engage. Intentionally meet some people. Intentionally connect. Do that by getting into a, a weekly group. Do it by serving in some capacity. Do it by actually participating in some of the events that we have. But do something. Maybe you're one of our college students here. Church cannot just be a checkbox that you do because your school expects it or maybe mom and dad expect it back home. It has to be something that you're invested in, that it's something that a family that you are a part of. And you know what? I know that for so many of us, we come at church at this point in time, but our experiences with church in the past were horrible. And maybe painful, and for some, unfortunately, maybe even abusive. And if that's you, I am so sorry. I know what that feels like. I have experienced those realities myself, and they are horrendous and they are evil. And I am so sorry that you experienced the worst of God's church. But I want you to know that God hated that as much as you do. He does not want his kids to treat people like that. He does not want his church to be like that. And I am so sorry that you experienced that. And so I just, I pray that you would give this place a chance. And, and may, if that takes a slow time, then let it be slow. But let, a, a trickle is better than nothing. But let God give you, a, let, give God a chance to show you that his body, his family is different than what you experience. I'm not minimizing what you experienced. I'm just saying trust God to show you that there could be other opportunities and his family could be different because what God wants for his family is not what you experienced. And I am so sorry that you did. We are meant to partner with one another to grow in the gospel and to share the gospel. And if you are truly a person that wants to grow in Christ, then that will be seen in how you treat one another. If you are truly somebody that wants to grow in the Lord, then that will be seen in how you engage with a place. Are you open? Are you sharing? Are you active? Are you engaged? But if we're not, if we're just there, or maybe we're present but we're not sharing what's going on inside, then it's, it's not this place at that point. You need to be part of the community that God has placed you in and grow in that place. And as God makes us more and more in his likeness, you'll help this community be more and more in this likeness, his likeness. God is always working on the community that we are becoming. He wants this place to be more and more like Jesus because the houses that you walked by or you drove by or you stumbled by us through the snow they need to see Jesus coming out of this place. 
And if Jesus is going to come out of this place, then God needs to work on this place. And if God needs to work on this place, he needs to work on the people in this place. And the thing that Philippians tells us is that is what God is always working on. And so I pray, I challenge you, let him work on you. Let him show you the truth of his word. I mean, God is always working. He is always working on the people and community that we are becoming. So trust him to do that work. And ask him to show you how he's doing that work. I would, I would challenge you this one simple thing. The Psalms tell us that we need to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. It talks about his word as a lamp unto our feet so that we can see the path that we're walking. So I want you to take this flashlight with you as you walk the difficult, dark path of COVID winter. Let Philippians 1.6 be the lamp unto your feet. And memorize that. Learn that verse. Let that be the verse that you have hidden in your heart. Let that be the verse that you know. That when the difficulties come and the doubts arise and the questions start coming, you know what's true. God is still working. And be confident that he's working. I would also challenge you as you think about, and again, we're going to be going into this series for a few weeks, but as you think about this fact that God is working and always working, ask yourself, what is he working on you about? There might be sins that we need to confess. There might need to be sins that we need to be honest about and ask forgiveness on. But I'm not saying this call also that you just beat yourself up and experience wallowing guilt. That's not the point. Because he is gracious and he forgives and he makes us new. What does it look like for you to take more and more on the character of Christ? God, show me what you're doing. Show me how I can show your love to people. Show me how I can show your character on my college floor, in my home, in my class, on my job site, on the train, wherever it might be. Ask him to show you what he's trying to do and then trust him to do it. Because in every single one of our stories and every single thing that we're experiencing, God is there and he is working on you. And he wants you to know the power of the love and grace and mercy of his son, the reality of his death on the cross, and the truth of the resurrection. Those aren't just Christian phrases. That is core to who we are, and that is core to what he is working on in you. God is working on you. God is working. So no one here, no one listening, has a reason to give up because God hasn't given up on you. So you keep going and let him keep working. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for who you are. We are grateful that you are eternally patient, gracious, and merciful with us. God, we pray that we're grateful that you are God and we're not. We're grateful that you're in control, that you are perfectly wise. God, I pray that we would not allow the difficulties that we are experiencing to blind us or deafen us to what you are doing and the truth that you speak to us. God, I pray that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of not knowing, in the midst of even helping others as they're in the midst of these things, 
God, I pray that you would bring us continually back to Philippians 1.6, that we would be confident, that we would be sure, even when the situation threatens us to give up, that we would be sure and confident that you are working. I pray that you would make this church more and more in your image. God, I pray that you would make us more and more in the likeness of your son. I pray that this church, that this family would be a light to this community and wherever we live. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Uh, Let's do this last song together.